Welcome to the community-supported Best of the Left podcast, with clips today from The Daily Show, Al Franken, Sam Cedar, La Show, The Young Turks, Tom Hartman, and Countdown with Keith Olbermann. Last week saw two major new products introduced. First up, Apple's Steve Jobs. An iPod, a phone, and an internet communicator. And we are calling it iPhone. Uh, I'll take 8,000. God, he's good. Obviously, people excited about the combination I thing. And now the other product, Iraq. I've committed more than 20,000 additional American troops to Iraq. Thank you, and good night. You know, uh, you'd think planning a major speech like that, someone would have checked the White House for crickets. But clearly, the president's product launch receiving a new cokish welcome. So the president's advisors launched a PR offensive to assure the public that just because our new way forward meant returning troop levels to where they were in December of 2005, this plan had a twist. There are a whole series of things that we are doing different. A new strategy that will yield different results. They will succeed rather than fail. (laughs) Succeed rather than fail sounds counterintuitive. But here's why this might work. The old plan asked an awful lot from the Iraqis. Our policy is stand up, stand down. As the Iraqis stand up, we'll stand down. (laughs) See, if they didn't stand up, (laughs) we're waiting. But this new plan changes that and addresses the so-called up-down loophole. It is time for the Iraqis to step up. That starts most importantly with the Iraqi leadership in Baghdad stepping up. They, in fact, need to step up. Now, you may say the White House has merely replaced the word stand with step. Touché. You may also point out that, as was reported recently, the Iraqis can't run a single battalion on their own. Well, the White House is ready for your negativity. If you don't like our idea, you got a better one. We want to hear it. All right. If the uh, Democrats don't like what we're proposing, it seems to me they have a, an obligation to, to put forward their proposal. If somebody's got a better idea about how to do this, we want to hear it. Ha! <laughs> now you may counter, I thought that's what the Iraq study group was for. <laughs> or the Levin-Reed amendment calling for phased withdrawal. Man, you're a real downer. But okay, I'll indulge you. You have a plan. Well, have you thought about looking at that plan in the most emotionally loaded way possible? Ask a simple question. If the U.S. withdraws, does it make Osama bin Laden happy or sad? And if bin Laden was happy, would he know it? And if bin Laden knew it, would he clap his hands? Would his face surely show it? These are the questions we would ask bin Laden if we had caught him. But what did you do? What did you say? 
some of these let's um <laughs> because this is four years ago magically you can hear ahead four years to to, to the president's speech last night and tell me how this how you'd feel about invading iraq play uh the first one radical shia elements some supported by iran formed death squads and the result was a vicious cycle of sectarian violence that continues today wow that sounds great. I'll have that. <laughs> okay, thanks a lot, Mr. President, by the way. Imagine this stuff, not just in January of 2003, but in October of 2002, when people who were opposed to the Iraq War were being vilified by Republicans running for their seats in the United States Senate. Imagine it in October 2004, when the president was running for re-election uh, based on his war policy and uh, vilifying Democrats for not supporting it wholeheartedly. Imagine it in October 2006, when they were beginning to run away from cut and run, which is what they said about anybody who didn't think this was a good idea. But I just, I just want people to think, put themselves right before we, we go to war. Okay, and, and hear this. Go into disaster. <laughs> Play that. In our discussions, we all agreed that there is no magic formula for success in Iraq. And one message came through loud and clear. Failure in Iraq would be a disaster for the United States. Okay, so I see. So by going in there, we're setting ourselves up for a disaster because there's no magic formula for success, and failure is the disaster. By the way, the supporters of this, of the surge, are saying this is the last chance. This is their last chance. And, oh, by the way, there are no guarantees. And, by the way, a failure is disaster. Thank you for putting us in the position. Now, now the president did take responsibility in the passive tense. How did he say it? Where mistakes have been made, the responsibility rests with me. Which is, I think, about the, the most uh, girly man way of owning up to your mistakes possible. He's basically saying, where people screwed up, I'll be the big man and take responsibility for Yeah, because it, well, actually you, you, you misspoke, because he didn't own up to his mistakes. He didn't say he made mistakes. Right. He said, where mistakes were made. So in other words, where idiots below me right. made mistakes, I'm such a big guy. I'll take responsibility. Play it again. Where mistakes have been made, the responsibility rests with me. What mistakes? Oh, no, no, no. Why go into that? That's the past. <laughs> okay. Uh, so so you're sitting in your living room. It's uh, 2003. 
Uh, magically, there is that uh, the the uh, futuristic VCR, uh, whatever DVD player, where you get to hear the president say this four years later. Which uh, consequences? The consequences of failure are clear. Radical Islamic extremists would grow would go, would grow in strength and gain new recruits. They would be in a better position to topple moderate governments, create chaos in the region, and use oil revenues to fund their ambitions. Iran would be emboldened in its pursuit of nuclear weapons. Our enemies would have a safe haven from which to plan and launch attacks on the American people. Holy moly! That's what's happened? Because we invaded Iraq? It's sort of like this. Saddam Hussein is not a great guy, but the consequences of removing him from power are clear. And then all these bad things yeah. happen. Radical Islamic extremists would grow in strength and gain new recruits. They would be in a better position to topple moderate governments, create chaos in the region, and use oil revenues to fund their ambitions. Iran would be emboldened in its pursuit of nuclear weapons. Our enemies would have a safe haven from which to plan and launch attacks on the American people. And that's why we've decided to just kind of keep the pressure up on him and continue to try to isolate him in the world community and not invade his country. <laughs> now, if you had said that then... You would be labeled as what? Uh, well, you, no one would have, if, and then you hadn't invaded, of course, no one would ever know if you had been right, but you would have been able, uh, perhaps labeled as a, as, Frenchman? a, as a solid strategic as figure. As a Frenchman. <laughs> <laughs> as yeah. an appeaser. What, what do you want to play now? Uh, I see you, you have a, I see you have a... Well, you know, I'm just thinking, you know, so uh, given all this, that we cannot possibly fail, and that, you know, leaving, obviously, according to the president, would be, Failure and a disaster for the United States. So he's got this new strategy, which is the last, his last card in the deck. This is a Hail Mary pass, and here's what he says about the new strategy. This new strategy will not yield an immediate end to suicide bombings, assassinations, or IED attacks. Oh, good. <laughs> our enemies in Iraq will make every effort to ensure that our television screens are filled with images of death and suffering. Blame the media. Yep. Yet over time... We can expect to see Iraqi troops chasing down murderers, fewer brazen acts of terror, and growing trust and cooperation from Baghdad's residents. Okay, I'm listening three years, uh, four years ago, and I'm hearing our enemies in Iraq will make every effort to ensure their television screens are filled with images of death and suffering. And not just on the Law and Order Marathon. <laughs> Assassinations, suicide bombings, IED attacks. Now, if you're hearing this four years ago, you're going like, no, thank you. Here's another one. Let me be clear. The terrorists and insurgents in Iraq are without conscience, and they will make the year ahead bloody and violent. <laughs> Even if our new strategy works exactly as planned, deadly acts of violence will continue. And we must expect more Iraqi and American casualties. What the hell kind of strategy is that? Well, I mean, he, he, he's being he, there. He's being honest with the situation he has created for us. He is, but that is exactly why the surge is a dumb idea. Nobody thinks it's going to really work.
baby Oh, she's still out to get me And I know, she knows That I'm not fond of asking True or false, October of this of 2006 this is prior to the election where the American public essentially said we want out of Iraq this is prior to uh, the Iraq study group the much ballyhooed and awaited uh, common sense document that was coming from the leaders of the uh, the old guard of the Republican Party so let's break it down a little bit uh, this is number uh, 26 this is uh, Bush Last night. The situation in Iraq is unacceptable to the American people. And it is unacceptable to me. And this is Bush in uh, October 2006. So many Americans are not satisfied with the situation in Iraq. I'm not satisfied either. This is Bush uh, last night, number 28. Many listening tonight will ask why this effort will succeed when previous operations to secure Baghdad did not. The Prime Minister understands this. Here's what he told his people just last week. The Baghdad security plan will not provide a safe haven for any outlaws, regardless of their sectarian or political affiliation. Oh, so he's going to go after those, uh, those uh, Shiite militias, I guess. Of course, this is what he said back in October about the same thing. First, we're working with political and religious leaders across Iraq urging them to take steps to restrain their followers and stop sectarian violence. The new Iraqi government has condemned violence from all quarters and agreed to a schedule for resolving issues such as disarming illegal militias and death squads. Yeah, I guess that schedule uh, didn't necessarily... That's basically all we did. We agreed to a schedule. And it wound down somewhere around 2020. Last night, George Bush introduced the, the incredibly new and fresh idea of embedding Americans to help train and build a better Iraq army. This is 30. We will increase the embedding of American advisors and Iraqi army units and partner a coalition brigade with every Iraqi army division. We'll help the Iraqis build a larger and better equipped army. And we will accelerate the training of Iraqi forces. Of course, this is different from what he said in October when he said the exact same thing. We're refining our training strategy for the Iraqi security forces so we can help more of those forces take the lead in the fight and provide them better equipment and firepower to be successful. Continuing on, uh, comparing George Bush's speech last night with the speech he gave three months ago. And to just to look at how little has changed in his perspective on Iraq. Last night, George Bush came up with the scintillating new idea of Iraq passing a law to share oil revenues. Now, when he's talking about sharing oil revenues, of course, he's not mentioning the law that the Americans uh, are, are pressuring the Iraqis to pass that say 75% of those revenues go to American oil companies for the first five years, and after that, they get uh, 20% of those oil revenues. What he's talking about is... Whatever dribs and drabs, whatever crumbs are left of the Iraqi people, spread them out over the three different uh, ethnic, uh, uh, essentially, uh, powers. The Kurds, 
the Sunni and the Shia. And so he came up with this great idea last night. To give every Iraqi citizen a stake in the country's economy, Iraq will pass legislation to share oil revenues among all Iraqis, to show that it is committed to delivering a better life. The Iraqi government will spend $10 billion of its own money on reconstruction and infrastructure projects that will create new jobs. Okay, yeah, that's presuming they actually end up seeing any of that $10 billion. But back October, he also had this new idea. The new Iraqi government has condemned violence from all quarters and agreed to a schedule for resolving issues such as disarming illegal militias and death squads, sharing oil revenues, amending the Iraqi constitution, and reforming the debathification process. All of which he repeated again last night. Last night, he say, he pledged that America will use all its diplomatic uh, resources to rally a neighboring states. We will use America's full diplomatic resources to rally support for Iraq from nations throughout the Middle East. Countries like Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Jordan, and the Gulf states need to understand that an American defeat in Iraq would create a new sanctuary for extremists and a strategic threat to their survival. A great idea. In fact, so great that he had it three months ago. We're reaching out to Arab states such as Saudi Arabia, the UAE, and Jordan, asking them to support the Iraqi government's efforts to persuade Sunni insurgents to lay down their arms and accept national reconciliation. And last night, of course, he, he spoke about how much he mourns the losses of uh, our military families. He sounded very sincere. We mourn the loss of every fallen American, and we owe it to them to build a future worthy of their sacrifice. In fact, he must have been so earnest and so sincere in that that he borrowed that line from October. I've met too many wives and husbands who've lost their partners in life. Too many children who won't ever see their mom and dad again. I owe it to them and to the families who still have loved ones in harm's way to ensure that their sacrifices are not in vain. 207 more military personnel died in between those two speeches. But fortunately, as of last October, well, I guess we were winning. Absolutely we're winning. There you go. There's no one in our government who believes that Maliki has the will or the power to allow us, our soldiers, to do what uh, supposedly needs to be done in Baghdad. Frankly, we don't have enough soldiers or Marines to do what needs to be done in Baghdad. This is all a way for George Bush to punt. Period. More and more Americans will die so that George Bush doesn't have to stand up in front of the American public and admit failure. That is it. That is all he's doing. He is just waiting this out so he can be in Texas when this whole thing comes down. Just a little, just a little.
President Bush admitted, uh, well, said if there were mistakes in uh, the Iraq war policy, those were uh, his responsibility. But he did not elucidate upon them or elaborate upon them in the speech. However, according to the Washington Post, the White House put out a chart that compared past key assumptions with current ones, showing how the uh, the situation has changed. In the past, the chart said the White House believed political progress will help defuse the insurgency. Now it's concluded that political and economic progress are unlikely without a basic level of security. Huh. In the past, the White House assumed the majority of Iraqis will support the coalition and Iraqi efforts to build a democratic state. Now it says Iraqis are increasingly disillusioned with coalition efforts. Huh. It's almost like the reporters were right. The chart went on to say the White House wrongly assumed that dialogue with insurgents groups would reduce violence. That other countries in the region have a strategic interest in a viable Iraq, or sorry, a stable Iraq, and that Iraqi security forces were gaining strength to handle threats. Those were the bad old assumptions. Now it says dialogue has not worked, Arab states have not fully supported the Iraqi government, and many Iraqi forces are not yet ready to handle the security threat. Like that, it's like they were suddenly started reading the media. Wow. The uh, hearings have begun, which is all I expect from uh, the Democratic control of Congress. Hearings. Give me some. T- give me some hearing. Give me some good TV. But uh, in his, in his um, confirmation hearing, new Secretary of Defense Robert Gates gave what I think is. An interesting, um, if not new, certainly novel and provocative explanation for why we went into Iraq in the first place. Saddam, if he didn't have weapons of mass destruction, would move quickly uh, to um, uh, to try and obtain them. And I, you know, I think we have to look at the reality in terms of of why we all thought that. Uh, if the if in terms of just this is a little bit of a diversion, but. I think one of the reasons why Iran is determined to have nuclear weapons is that they see how complicated it is for us to try and deal with a North Korea that has nuclear weapons. And I think they believe that if if Saddam had had a nuclear weapon, we might not have attacked him in either 1990 or 2001, or 1991 or 2001. So I, there was no doubt, and I and I believe Saddam had the same calculus. And so once the sanctions were lifted, uh, there was no doubt in my mind that that he would strive to get a nuclear weapon. He clearly hadn't changed his spots in the slightest, and so that's the reason that I I supported uh, the uh, the decision to go in. So we had to go in to keep him from getting a nuclear weapon because if he got a nuclear weapon, we couldn't go in. That's what I got out of it. You tell me if I'm wrong. We, he thought, like all, like the North Koreans or the uh, Iranians, that uh, you know, if you get a nuclear weapon, the Americans can't invade you. So we have to invade, prevent him from getting a nuclear weapon, or else we won't be able to invade. It's cool. It's cool in here. We can dance if we want to. We can leave your friends behind. Cause your friends don't dance, and if they don't dance, well, they're no friends of mine. We can go where we want to, place where they will never find. And we can act like we come from out of this world, even though you're one far behind. We can dance. What do you say?
just feel me But my heart's too a beat Then surprise him with a victory cry Say, we can act if we want to If we don't, nobody will And you can act real rude and totally removed And I can act like an imbecile Say, we can dance, we can dance Everything's out of control I tell you, one of the funny things that the President Bush's speech proves is how open-minded I am. I know America was waiting to see how it would affect me. Uh, but no, seriously, and the reason I say that first is I'm listening to this speech, and I think in the beginning, maybe. I mean, I'm crazy enough to think maybe, and I'll tell you why. For the first time in a long time, Bush actually started out the speech honest. And I was a little blown away by that. And uh, I was like, look at this. He's actually saying things that are kind of true and that aren't, you know, total talking point fabrications. So it kind of threw me for a loop here. And believe it or not, in that moment, it actually made me, like, open up and think, okay, well, let's see what else he has to say. You know, maybe he's got something that wasn't leaked, that isn't full of crap, that is, you know, sub thing where I really would want to give him another shot. And the reason is, it's not about giving him another shot. I don't want to fail in Iraq. I don't want America to fail in Iraq. And I don't want Iraq to fall apart. And, I, you know, if there's any chance that there could be something that could work, I, I, that would be great. But that's, the, so, but that's the genius of any con man. I mean, the fact that you reel them in with truth, or with, with truth and you sort of, you, you trap them in honesty. And then... You feed him the BS after that. Well, I, I hear what you're saying, Jill, and that's the Fox News Channel trick, which is sprinkling a, in a little couple of things that are true along with a whole bed of lies, and then you're not sure what's true and what's not true. But that's actually not the game that Bush usually plays. It's lies throughout, and it's obvious, and it's blatant, and it's over the top. Uh, and I, it's like usually I listen to a Bush speech, and I'm like, oh, Please, I hear you, but it's a it's a rather pointless distinction, the one I'm going to make. But I, I I sort of think that I, I think you're I think you're not giving them quite enough credit. I think they they do consistently sprinkle in lies. It's just again, I mean, sprinkle in truths to to cover up the gargantuan lies, which uh, is, which of course which you're alluding to. Uh, it, but again, you got to put yourself in the perspective of who he's talking to. He's not talking to people who read 15, 25 news stories a day. Mm-hmm. So they get away with, so the stuff that they get away with, you know, uh, folks who paid a tremendous amount of attention, except apparently many people in Washington who totally know, but are like, mm, well, interesting. Uh, but you know, those of us who pay a great deal of attention, uh, can't believe the staggering lies he's telling, but they still, you're don't, they always mix And Even Dick Cheney, for the love of God, mentions truths. Jewel Pike gets an award, by the way. Congratulations. Uh, you used the, uh, uh, word, the words George Bush and genius in a sentence correctly. <laughs> it's not easy to do. Well done. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Been working on it for a couple of years now. So, uh, let's give you the first, uh, clip from the the bush speech last night this is the one where i began to think maybe you know here's a little bit of honesty from the president that's refreshing so here it is the situation in iraq is unacceptable to the american people and it is unacceptable to me our troops in iraq have fought bravely they have done everything we have asked them to do where mistakes have been made The responsibility rests with me. Now, you might think, come on. (laughs) Uh, You know, first of all, people always say the responsibility is with me. 
and that usually means absolutely nothing. Like that's supposed to be followed up by then that's why I'm stepping down. Right. Exactly. You know, it's just to say like, oh, my bad. And then not do anything about it is kind of useless. But to be fair to him, the lead up to that and and the whole, I would say, first third of the speech was full of what was going wrong in Iraq and the Shia Sunni differences that were accurate. And so, yeah, well, he he nailed it because he had just heard about him, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, so they were like fresh in his mind. Right. Then, well, I mean, that's not him. He's written off a teleprompter. I'm sure he just doesn't have a clue what's coming next. Well, no, but first of all, that's always true. I mean, they're always reading off a teleprompter. No, first I first of all, know, by the way, reading off a teleprompter. I can't imagine that he participated at all in the speech. No, but, but no, uh, are, the evidence right. we have is really overwhelming that that's not true. That he really does. That he, no, that no, has, not that he does. That he did in this case. In fact, that's what a lot of the uh, we were getting from the Pentagon. The generals who were like, normally he doesn't ask any questions in a meeting. This time he was actually a little engaged. Like, no. oh, like, oh, really? What's happening in that? Province no, the, of Iraq. The, the, the meeting, perhaps, but in speech preparation, he is he is involved. Okay, I I, really? I, I don't know how that works, but uh, look, this at this point, he realizes the whole thing screwed up, and he should have been paying attention all along. And a lot of the details he thought were unimportant. Nah, I just delegate. I'm the decider. He, I think, he now has finally gotten to the point where he realizes, oops, I should have been paying attention all along. I think he was intimately Cause, involved because if, if he had been paying attention all along. <laughs> Things would be going a lot better. Right. It'd probably be worse. But nonetheless, at this point, this plan is Bush's plan. No question about it. One of the reasons we know it's Bush's plan is because everyone else told him to do something else. Yeah, look. The Iraq study group said, don't do this. Do you know? Do a phase withdrawal. Democrats, the whole country in the 2006 election, the generals, he ignored everyone else's advice. That's a really good point. Uh, look, I... I I mean, you're right. It is definitely his plan. It was always his plan. These are always his plans. I mean, he may have adopted a a neocon strategy when he took office and after September 11th, but this was always him. It was always him. He's always been the guy. So the the mea culpa part of this speech meant, I got to be honest, and I meant nothing to me. I I don't care about, first of all, I don't care if people apologize. I'm I'm seldom interested in the 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 political framework of conversations we have in this country about you know you know guests come on CNN after should John Kerry apologize? who cares man I mean forget the fact that he didn't say anything worth apologizing for but even if he had I don't know apologize fix it move on do the business of the country and there's only the only thing that would have been different is to me these mistakes first of all it's all couched in their their mistakes were made in the field it's saying. These guys, these commanders screwed up, but it's my fault for putting in the map. That's a nonsense BS kind of apology. You want to apologize? I had a terrible policy, a terrible strategy, and I attacked a country that didn't attack me, and now we're going to leave. I'm sorry. (laughs) Then I'd be like, okay, wow, that's an apology. And maybe I'm being too hard. Maybe I I can't be satisfied, but it's nonsense. And when the strategy that they're invoking now is compounding the problem, I don't see how you get to say, you know, it's like, "I'm, I'm sorry I keep hitting you. I'm sorry I keep hitting you. I'm going to go, instead of uh, blows to your face, we're going to go with body blows now. I'm sorry about the facial blow. Father, can you hear me? How have I let you down? I curse the day that I was born. And all the sorrow in this world.
Bush is saying last night that we're going to move all these soldiers. We're going to, you know, another what twenty some odd thousand soldiers. Well, we'll see how many. But that he's first of all that he's, he's it's already in in process. Like he doesn't need any help from Congress. He doesn't need any authorization from Congress. He's, he's it's 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 a done deal. He got rid of the generals who disagreed with him. And boom, in he goes. And so Congress is going to be presented with this with a with a done deal. And and a piece of this deal is that he's going to try and disarm the Medi army. You know, Muqtada El Sadr's army. I mean, here's Muqtada El Sadr. Here's this guy who is whose father, I mean, you know, they named Sadr City after a large chunk of Baghdad. Father, one of the one of the markers killed by Saddam Hussein in the Shia-Sunni combat, competition, whatever you want to call it. Sadr, ironically, the guy whose Medi army back, what, three years ago when Bush said, okay, that's it, we're going to eat. Remember when Bush put us a... a, a a bounty on Sauter's head said, we're going to take this guy out, this young cleric, this firebrand cleric. And so they sent a bunch of soldiers in there, and one of them was Casey Sheehan. He and five other guys died that day. And then Bush said, oh, well, okay, we're not going to do that. And then, and then they, we're going to have elections instead. So they have the elections, and Sauter gets like a third of the vote. So here's a guy who represents the you know one of the largest blocks in among the Shia who has a an armed militia that may be larger than the entire US military force in Iraq and we're going to try and disarm him and he represents 30% of the government and we're helping the government I mean, do you have any sense of how complicated, what an incredible mess this is? Joe Biden put together a, you know, a year ago. Joe Biden and, and uh, actually there's been a, a, a series of Democratic proposals. But I thought Biden's made a lot of sense. That we simply say, okay, it's three countries. And frankly, you know, it's, it's Kurdistan in the north and Shia land in the south and Sunni land in the center. And there's a whole bunch of oil, mostly in the in the in the Shia areas. And all three of them are going to have to share the revenue from the oil, split it up on a per capita basis. So they're not going to be fighting over oil. And we'll provide you know the funds for the for the ethnic cleansing, as it were, for the relocation. So that it can be done in a in a reasonable and and I'm not quoting Joe Biden here. This is just a you know, broad concept. So it can be done in a reasonable and and orderly fashion, rather than by assassinating people. I and mean, right now you have a, a hundred people a day, more or less, being being executed as part of the ethnic cleansing that's going on just in Baghdad. So just you know, the British created this country out of nothing. These were three provinces in the Ottoman Empire. At the end of World War One, and after World War One, when the British seized that area, they said, "Okay, we're going to jam these three provinces together, and we're going to call it Iraq." Let's go back to it being three provinces. 
But the problem with that, you know, the problem with that from Bush's point of view, is that he's not going to get control of the oil. He's not going to get control of the power in the region. He's not uh, because because he's incapable of considering the possibility that maybe the, the the thing that should have been done over the last five years of his presidency was moving America away from dependency on foreign oil instead of toward it. If we had taken the, the, the hundreds of billions of dollars that we have spent in Iraq and instead bought solar panels and put them on people's roofs all across America and hooked them up to meters and fed power back into the power grid and said to the, and said to the auto companies in the United States, you know, you've got to kick up your average fleet mileage, your cafe uh, standards by five miles per gallon and maybe cut back on speed limits in some place. I mean, you know, we could we could have cut in half the amount of oil that we're importing from the Middle East with an aggressive program that would have cost a whole lot less than it cost us to go into Baghdad, to go into Iraq. But we're there now. So what do we do? I you know, I I I, I agree with with the Democrats who are suggesting that it is time and and Republicans, I mean Chuck Hagel saying this, you know, who wants to be president. Gordon Smith saying, it, it, enough. Our soldiers have bullseyes on their back. Let's not put more bullseyes in there. The Iraqi people don't want us in there. And, and you know, Bush saying, oh, no, we've got a new strategy. It's going to work when the previous one didn't. This new strategy will not yield an immediate end to suicide bombings, assassinations, or IED attacks. No. Our enemies in Iraq will make every effort to ensure that our television screens are filled with images of death and suffering. Now you get that. Listen to the framing of this. Our enemies in Iraq. We're talking about the people of Iraq. Remember, when we invaded Iraq, there was no Al-Qaeda in Iraq because Al-Qaeda was a religious Sunni organization and Saddam Hussein was a secular Sunni and he wanted to have nothing to do with the religious zealots who were trying to take over his part of the religion. Anytime anybody in Iraq said the word Al-Qaeda, Saddam Hussein would throw, them, throw their butts in jail. So our enemy has become the people of Iraq themselves. And to the extent that there's an Al-Qaeda there, of course, it's the Sunnis who, you know, are, are saying, all right, Saddam Hussein is dead. He's not going to defend us. He's not going to protect us. The, the Shia are going to massacre us because, uh, you know, that's been going on for 1,400 years. So we need to align ourselves with somebody. There's that Osama bin Laden guy out there. Of course, George didn't mention him in his speech last night. Anyhow, he continues. Yet over time, we can expect to see Iraqi troops chasing down murderers. Murderers. It would be nice to have police go after murderers. You want to have troops engaged in what? Defending the country? Pulling the country together? I mean, doesn't he get it? Armies don't do police work? Or, or is, is murderers a way of saying, you know, average Iraqis who don't want us in their country anymore? Thank you very much.
more on the potential constitutional showdown shaping up between this White House and the 110th Congress. Let's call again upon Nixon White House counsel John Dean, author most recently of Conservatives Without Conscience and, of course, an old friend of Countdown. John, good evening. Thanks once more. Thank you, Keith. Is Tony Snow right? Is the money already in the budget, at least in the short term? And, and is there any way to stop the escalation using the purse strings or is the Constitution on the president's side? I think probably he, Snow is right that in the short term there probably is funding. Uh, it's probably in a supplemental appropriation bill. I haven't thumbed through them all, but they do expire rather quickly. They're rather short term. So in the long run, uh, there will be a vote on this, and there, there can be a vote on this indeed if the uh, House and Senate want to get into it. And there would seem also to be a recent example of the budgetary end run that the administration is employing now in that when it prepared for the invasion of Iraq, it took some money designated for Afghanistan and diverted it. If a Pentagon budget is as convoluted as, say, just as an example, a Halliburton expense report, what can Congress ultimately do to check the White House after it is said, well, okay, generally? Well, Keith, the, uh, the power of the Congress with the, with the budget is plenary. They really do have war powers and control over war powers through the budget. This goes back all the way to uh, the earliest days of our, our presidencies uh, from the constitutional founding. Uh, Jefferson, of course, talked about using the purse to uh, control the dogs of war. So there's no question that authority exists, and it's a question of whether the Congress has the will to use it. So I don't think there's any doubt that they can do it. Uh, uh, it's a question of whether they will do it. Jack Murtha had suggested that one of the things that, that could be done at this point constitutionally is anything else that comes in regarding uh, the budget, regarding uh, Iraq or now anywhere else, could be vetted line by line in the appropriate subcommittees and, and weeded out then, and basically the, the whole matter of, of these budgetary supplementals or the full budget would be then thrown back to the president, and if he wants to veto the whole thing, that's really the, the, the easiest way for Congress to have any kind of impact. Do you, do you buy into that theory? Well, that's, of course, why presidents would like line-item vetoes or uh, more control over the detail. Uh, that is a very successful tactic by Congress to put as many things in an omnibus bill as they can, particularly in budgetary bills where the president dare not uh, uh, veto it and close down the government. We've been there, done that, uh, and that's a very strong leverage by the, uh, the House and the Senate to indeed get what they want in that bill. Expanding this, as the president uh, seemed to imply we were expanding the entire conflict uh, in his speech the other night, are we headed to a constitutional crisis or conflict or, or something in between? Should the White House choose to draw Iran into this conflict in any meaningful way? Well, I think this White House knows that the American people do not have much interest in their warmongering. So they're not going to get any kind of congressional approval to do this sort of thing. Uh, we've heard the debate that's going up on the Hill. The Hill is very suspicious of where they're going with this. So indeed, if they do, uh, do they, I think they have two options, Keith. They, they can do what Nixon did, mm -hmm. which is to use the excuse of withdrawing by going to withdraw troops to protect them. You've got to go into Iran, and, and uh, as Nixon did in Laos, Laos and Cambodia, or you could have a, a client state like Israel do the dirty work for you and avoid a constitutional crisis on both of those routes uh, with some, the pretext of uh, the way you're proceeding. To what degree is all of this going to be decided by the old advice, get there first? I mean, if the troops are there, Congress can't very well call them back, and if the safe is locked, uh, the president can't very well pay for their airfare out of his pocket. 
Well, uh, we don't know about that. We know that the uh, that did happen during the Reagan administration, where mm -hmm. there was a tin cup passed around to deal with a, a prohibition by the Congress on funding the Contras, and indeed uh, we went to friendly countries and got money and kept it out of the appropriations process. A visibility this high as, as what's going on in Iraq, you couldn't do that. So the short answer is, Keith, if the, if the Congress cuts off the funds, the president's in trouble, he's got to bring the troops home. In your analysis of the, uh, of, of the Bush administration, was Iran always on the, uh, on the planning maps? Well, I, it's hard to think it hasn't been since uh, it's been in a part of the axis of evil from day one. Uh, and the neoconservatives have certainly indeed had it on their uh, radar since day one. And it'll be surprising if indeed he somehow uh, extricates himself from the mess we've got in Iraq without the, at least some effort to fill their, their desire to deal with Iran simultaneously. Nixon White House Counsel, John Dean. As always, John, great thanks for your insight tonight. Have a good weekend. Thank you. Spencer Boyer, he's a fellow to the Security and Peace Initiative, which is a joint initiative at the, of the uh, Center for American Progress and the Century Foundation. Uh, and prior to joining CAP, he was, uh, which is the Center for American Progress, he was the Executive Director and War Powers Initiative Director at the Constitution Project based at uh, Georgetown University. Thanks for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, what did you think of the speech? Well, unfortunately, I was disappointed with the speech. I think it's a repackaging of ideas that have been tried in the past and have failed. Uh, I think we've seen this movie before. We've had uh, several surges uh, in this war in Iraq. Uh, none of them have been successful in decreasing the violence in Iraq. Uh, we've uh, had two surges uh, uh, just since uh, the middle of last year, and uh, we had one of our bloodiest months uh, this past December. How, how, how big were those surges? Well, we've increased our uh, force levels uh, by at least 15,000 uh, since last June. And, uh, again, the violence has only gotten worse in Iraq. Uh, I think one of the other things that really disappointed me about the speech was the fact that uh, President Bush is relying very heavily on uh, Nouri al-Maliki uh, following through on promises that he's made in the past and has not lived up to uh, to get control of the sectarian violence in Iraq. Uh, and to go ahead and send uh, 21,000 additional troops into the middle of a civil war uh, that we shouldn't be uh, involved with uh, to start with, uh, I think is, is the wrong way to go about this. Yeah, you know, I was struck uh, yesterday where he said the challenge playing out across, this is in the speech last night, uh, the, the challenge playing out across the broader Middle East is more than a military conflict, it is the decisive ideological 
struggle of uh, our time. On one side are those who believe in freedom and moderation. On the other side are extremists who kill the innocent and have declared their intention to destroy our way of life. But that's not really what's going on in Baghdad, is it? It's, it's Shia versus Sunni. Well, there are multiple uh, civil conflicts yeah. going on in Iraq right now. You have Shia versus Sunni. You have intra-Shia battles. Uh, you have uh, certainly the Sunni Arab insurgency. Uh, you've had uh, Kurdish Arab violence in the north of the country. Uh, I think the president, uh, as usual, is being a bit simplistic uh, in his his analogies and his uh, uh, analysis of what's going on in Iraq. But, but I mean, specifically within Bag- in Baghdad, I, I mean, I realize that there is a Sunni insurgency, and I'm, I'm and I know that that there they are suicide bombers, etc., who are Sunni insurgents are in in Baghdad. But mainly, what's really going on there is a struggle between Shias and Sunnis, right? In Baghdad, that's, that's correct. So it's it's sectarian violence. It's not what he's describing there. Right, and uh, I think that his idea for sending more troops uh, doesn't get at the heart of the problem, that this is a a civil conflict uh, between uh, sides that uh, won't stop the violence until uh, many political issues are are resolved in that country. Uh, And we could have uh, troops on every corner, as is often said, uh, and increase the troops by, by much more than the 20,000 that's being proposed. And there's a general consensus that you probably need at least 100,000 troops, uh, additional troops in Iraq, to really even begin to uh, deal with the sectarian violence. But I think even then uh, we're going about it the wrong way. We're, we're doing the opposite of what we should be doing and doing it uh, in the uh, reverse. We need to be getting a hold of the political situation first uh, to be able to give uh, U.S. and Iraqi forces a real chance at uh, stemming the violence. Okay, well then, uh, what are the political issues that need to be resolved, and can they be, uh, and can they be? Uh, well, and, and, uh, and does, does Maliki have a, a motivation to do it? Uh, I, I think that uh, there are a number of different issues that need to be resolved, certainly uh, dealing with oil revenue sharing. Did the president uh, mention that last the pre- night? The president did mention that last night, uh, dealing with uh, real inclusion of the Sunni minority into the political structure. Uh, and uh, you also need to deal with uh, power sharing in the country and, and, and the division of, of power between the central government and uh, uh, power in the provinces. Uh, you know, those are you know a few issues that need to be resolved. Uh, certainly, the president has mentioned these things, but I don't think that uh, there's a real plan for for implementing them, other than saying, uh, "Well, uh, Prime Minister Al Maliki has assured me he's going to work harder at this." But as often as as has often been mentioned, uh, one of the problems in Iraq right now is that there is not the proper motivation uh, of the Iraqi troops. Uh, and uh, of the government to really get a hold of the situation because of the fact that you have a Shiite majority uh, that is finally in power uh, and likes it. Uh, And you have militias that have infiltrated the government in Iraq. And so when you're asking troops to go out there and fight, uh, and 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 take on Shiite militias as well as Sunnis, uh, there's not the proper motivation to do so. Yeah, but is there the proper motivation to come to these political uh, uh, resolutions uh, uh, to resolve these issues. It, it, I mean, it, it's the same lack of motivation, it seems, either way. I agree. I think that there is a, a lack of motivation as well uh, among the Shiites to really share power uh, with uh, with the Sunnis in the country. We saw in the Saddam Hussein trial, uh, it, it, it 
unfortunately made even the worst uh, dictator uh, you know, that we've seen in a while uh, look almost dignified at his hanging. Uh, because well, the hanging, like, not the trial so much. But. Right, at, at the hanging uh, made it look like he... Uh, uh, was was the reasonable one in that room? It looked like a, a Shiite lynch mob, which I think was was a shame. But it certainly uh, shows that there are some serious sectarian issues going on uh, within. Well, that was that was supposedly the Iraqi government hanging this guy, and what we saw on the from the cell phone video is a it was a sectarian mob lynching a guy. I mean that and and that. Unfortunately, are our allies. I mean, that. In other words, that's the that's the guys that <laughs> we're counting on. You know, exactly. I mean, that's that's the problem. Right. That is the problem. And you know, again, to uh, to continue to push for a military solution uh, when we've tried this before, when we've had surges in troops before, uh, when you have. Uh, Shiites and Sunnis who are committed to killing each other. Uh, I think that that's the wrong way to go about it. We we shouldn't be uh, in the middle of a civil war. It's certainly not why we went in. And I don't think that there would be uh, today if you were to try to get authorization authorization to go in and uh, referee a civil war. No, but but that's not the. I mean, but any anyone in the administration now would say that's not the point. The point is we are where we are. And uh, to the extent that any mistakes were made, I, the president, am responsible for them. I didn't make them. I uh, used the passive tense. The mistakes were made. Right. <laughs> Thanks a lot, buddy. Uh, which is my whole attitude toward this is thanks a lot for getting us exactly here. But we're here. Right. And And the problem is the president, I think, still... Uh, fundamentally views this as a military problem. It, it's fine and good. Well, to you say, keep saying that. You keep saying that. I'm sorry, Spencer, but you keep saying that that that, that there isn't a mil- there's no military solution here. We need to go to the political solution first. But I don't see any motivation for for this government to uh, to resolve the political issues. And, and you might be right, but uh, certainly we've tried before. Uh, putting more troops in uh, to get a hold of the violence there. And we need to be doing more to get the Iraqis to take control of the situation. And I think the best motivating factor there is not saying we will continue to increase our troop levels. Uh, we will continue to give you what you need. And, and certainly President Bush last night said, well, you know, if they don't uh, do this, uh, you know, we won't stand for it. But, you know, he didn't really elaborate as to what we would do if they don't, whether we're going to pull out or not. Uh, but I think a better motivating factor to get the government government to really take on uh, the difficult political compromises that are necessary is to say, look, we are going to have a phase withdrawal of our troops. Uh, we are going to uh, help you, uh, as the uh, Iraqi study group recommended, uh, to, to continue to train your troops uh, and so forth. But we were moving out, and uh, we're going to begin a, a phase withdrawal. We'll move all of our combat forces uh, by uh, early next year into more of a support role, a training and advisory role for Iraqi troops. Um, we're going to help you to try to have a major diplomatic surge uh, and to involve all of Iraq's neighbors uh, to come up with some type of uh, peaceful reconciliation. Uh, you know, I think that that is a more uh, reasonable way to go, but not just sending more troops in because uh, we want to try harder at, a same, at the same failed uh, approach. Okay, but what, I, what I'm thinking is when I hear this, I'm just trying to be devil's advocate here. I'm thinking, uh, 
Maliki and Sadr, uh, his buddies in the uh, Mahdi army, etc., saying, great, <laughs> leave, <laughs> so that we can uh, give the Sunnis a thumping. Well, I, I certainly think that there are some indications that uh, uh, that that the Amaliki government does want uh, uh, the U.S. to uh, start to withdraw troops to to not be there so that they can take care of it. But you know, in the end, we can't solve their problems for them. We can't impose a U.S. solution on them if they're not motivated to do so. You know, I think certainly we created a vacuum when we went in, uh, and I think that we've we put in. Uh, a, a quite a decent effort, at least trying to uh, to move the situation forward um, and giving them a chance to deal with it. Uh, yeah, I certainly don't think we should have gone in to begin with, uh, but that's beside the point. We're in there now, uh, and the question is, how do you move forward, and what is the best way to motivate this government uh, to deal with the difficult political issues it's, need, it's going to need to deal with? Is it to say we're going to continue to put in troops, we're going to continue uh, to uh, you know, risk American lives, we're going to continue to try to police a civil war, uh, even though most uh, Iraqis, I don't believe, really want us uh, there, believe that we are actually adding to the violence, uh, even though the national intelligence estimate last year said that uh, we had become a cause celeb for Islamic jihadists. Uh, you know, do we continue to put U.S. troops in uh, to deal with a civil war that we can't solve? I, I don't think so. So maybe what you're saying is... Um, you know, we try resolving these political issues, but if we can't, and we redeploy and leave, and this war happens between Sunnis and Shias, and the Shias who are, uh, you know, a lot, the vast majority of the population, uh, at least it's not, a tr it isn't attracting jihadists against the United States, it's pointing out that this is an internecine war between uh, Muslims. Well, certainly, is, is that like is that like the best we can do here? I mean, is that <laughs> is that like, well, uh, it's uh, you see, it's not the West versus Islam; it's Islam versus Islam, and um, you know, we uh, we tried our best and um, we didn't do well, but but you see, this isn't it isn't us. Well, certainly there are no good options in Iraq right now. I, I think there is a consensus about that, and there are just least bad ones. Uh, I, I don't know if any of these things will work. I don't know if we can fix Iraq, but what I do know is that a, a, a U.S.-imposed military solution uh, trying to... Uh, to end uh, multiple civil conflicts going on in that country is not going to work. Uh, it hasn't worked in the last several years. It's not going to work now. Maybe in the beginning, if we had put uh, additional troops in uh, and quelled the insurgency before it began, uh, we wouldn't be in the situation we're in now, but we are. Uh, and, you know, I certainly think that we need to make our best effort uh, to try to help the Iraqis uh, forge a, uh, a government, a democracy that can secure the country uh, and uh, can provide reasonable services to the Iraqi people. But again, we can't do it for them. They have to be motivated to do so. And sending an additional troop saying we're going to be there um, uh, regardless of what happens, uh, you know, again, despite President Bush's uh, comments last night, I don't think there are any real, uh, real threats to uh, 
pulled troops out. It's just saying, well, he's promised me this, and if he doesn't, uh, you know, the American people won't stand for it. But I don't know what that means. Uh, but I think that we need to put more it, pressure. It did, it did ring very hollow as a threat. Uh, it certainly did. If you don't do this, the American people will lose faith in you. Right. Uh, I, I, I don't <laughs> think that means much. I don't think well, that means much. I don't know how much faith the American people have in uh, Nouri al-Maliki, um, but uh, there should be a poll. <laughs> well, I think he needs. Uh, I, you know, I think he's in he's in a difficult position, certainly. Um, and he, on the one hand, is he needs uh, the support of U.S. government, or at least wants it. But uh, he's also beholden to uh, to Shiites uh, who put him into power. And uh, yeah, I think he uh, wants that as well. Yeah, I think that that is probably a greater motivator. But you know, if we Instead of saying we're just going to continue to uh, increase troops to help you all fight uh, a battle that's probably going to need to be won by Iraqis, uh, if we said, hey, we're going to do fundamentally what the Iraq study group recommended, we're going to withdraw nearly all of our U.S. combat forces from Iraq by early 2008, right. we're going to transition our remaining troops into a support role, we're going to help you have a major aggressive diplomatic effort, including uh, Iran and Syria, not excluding them as President Bush did last night, and uh, try to have a renewed commitment to a comprehensive Israeli-Arab peace process, I think that that is a, a much better way to go. Sometimes I feel like I am drunk behind the wheel, the wheel of possibility, however it may roll. Give it a spin, see if you can somehow factor in. Yesterday, the so-called doomsday clock was officially moved from seven minutes to midnight to five minutes to midnight. It's 11.55, ladies and gentlemen. The only thing standing between us and annihilation, Colbert's fourth act wrap-up. <laughs> One of the main culprits, the chaos in the Middle East, particularly the violence overtaking Iraq. Who will save us? I give you Senator Joseph P. Biden. What can you do immediately to impact upon the prospects that there will not be further support for this policy where the president ignored the advice of every major voice, every major voice in the government, outside the government, military personnel in the government, military personnel outside the government, former secretaries of state, former secretaries of defense, uh, 70% of us. <laughs> and so with time running out, and President Bush seemingly hell-belt on a catastrophic path to destruction, the United States Senate, with great reluctance, has taken the ultimate step. They are at this very moment debating passing a non-binding resolution with flexible language, voicing <laughs> their somewhat disapproval. May God have mercy on us. It's got to work! I cannot believe that the President of the United States would not pay heed to a bipartisan resolution 
passed by the United States Senate, notwithstanding it's not binding. The president doesn't believe the Constitution is binding. What makes you think? What makes you think he's doing? Now, the only question. The only question now is which senator's non-binding resolution will pass. Will it be Hillary Clinton's to cap the number of troops? John Warner's proposal to follow the ISG report? Joe Biden and Carl Levin's bill demanding Iraq provide its own security? Or Senator Byrd's bill to invent a flying car that runs on pistachio ice cream? He's loopy. But the White House is urging the Senate to ponder the significance of such a drastic non-binding resolution. What message does Congress intend to give? And who does it think the audience is? Is the audience merely the president? Is it the voting American public? Or in an age of instant communication, is it also Al-Qaeda? You see, Senate? Now Al-Qaeda's gonna find out our democracy's still sort of functioning. Is that what you want? Only this president, only in this time, only with this dangerous, even messianic certitude, could answer a country demanding an exit strategy from Iraq by offering instead an entrance strategy for Iran. Only this president could look out over a vista of 3,008 dead and 22,834 wounded in Iraq and finally say, where mistakes have been made, the responsibility rests with me, only to follow that by proposing to repeat the identical mistake in Iran. Only this president could extol the thoughtful recommendations of the Iraq study group and then take its most far-sighted recommendation, engage Syria and Iran, and transform it into threaten Syria and Iran, when al-Qaeda would like nothing better than for us to threaten Syria, and when President Ahmadinejad would like nothing better than to be threatened by us. This is diplomacy by skimming. It is internationalism by drawing pictures of Superman in the margins of the textbooks. It is a presidency of cliff notes. And to Iran and Syria, and yes, also to the insurgents in Iraq, we must look like a country run by the equivalent of the drunken pest who gets battered to the floor of the saloon by one punch, then staggers to his feet and shouts at the other guy's friends, okay, which one of you is next? Mr. Bush, the question is no longer what are you thinking, but rather are you thinking at all? I have made it clear to the Prime Minister and Iraq's other leaders that America's commitment is not open-ended, you said last night. And yet, without any authorization from the public who spoke so loudly and clearly to you in November's elections, without any consultation with a Congress in which key members of your own party, like Senator Brownback and Senator Coleman and Senator Hagel, are fleeing for higher ground, without any awareness that you are doing exactly the opposite of what Baker Hamilton urged you to do, you seem to be ready to make an open-ended commitment on America's behalf to do whatever you want in Iran. 
Our military, Mr. Bush, is already stretched so thin by this bogus adventure in Iraq that even a majority of serving personnel are willing now to tell pollsters that they are dissatisfied with your prosecution of the war. It is so weary that many of the troops you have just consigned to Iraq will be on their second tours or their third tours or their fourth tours, and now you're going to make them take on Iran and Syria as well? Who is left to go and fight, sir? Who are you going to send to interrupt the flow of support from Iran and Syria? Laura and Barney? The line is from the movie Chinatown, and I quote it often. Middle of a drought, the mortician chuckles, and the water commissioner drowns. Only in L.A. Middle of a debate over the lives and deaths of another 21,500 of our citizens in Iraq, and the president wants to saddle up against Iran and Syria. Maybe that's the point to shift the attention away from just how absurd and childish is this latest war strategy, strategy that is for the war already underway, not the one on deck. We are to put 17,500 more troops into Baghdad and 4,000 more into Anbar province to give the Iraqi government breathing space. In and of itself, that is an awful and insulting term. The lives of 21,500 more Americans endangered to give breathing space to a government that just turned the first and perhaps the most sober act of any democracy, the capital punishment of an ousted dictator, into a vengeance lynching so barbaric and so lacking in the solemnities necessary for credible authority that it might have offended the Ku Klux Klan of the 19th century. And what will our men and women in Iraq do, the ones who will truly live and die during what Mr. Bush said last night, will be a year ahead which will demand more patience, sacrifice, and resolve. They will try to seal up Sadr City and other parts of Baghdad in which the civil war is worst. Mr. Bush did not mention that while our people are trying to do that, the factions in the civil war will no longer have to focus on killing each other, but rather they can focus anew on killing our people. Because last night, the president foolishly all but announced that we will be sending those 21,500 poor souls over, but no more after that. And if the whole thing fizzles out, we're going home. The plan fails militarily. The plan fails symbolically. The plan fails politically. Most important, perhaps, Mr. Bush, the plan fails because it still depends on your credibility. You speak of mistakes and of the responsibility resting with you, but you do not admit to making those mistakes. And you offer us nothing to justify this clenched fist towards Iran and Syria. In fact, when you briefed news correspondents off the record before that speech, they were told once again, if you knew what we knew, if you saw what we saw, if you knew what we knew was how we got into this morass in Iraq in the first place, the problem arose when it turned out that the question wasn't whether or not we knew what you knew, but whether or not you knew what you knew. You, sir, have become the president who cried wolf. All that you say about Iraq now could be gospel. All that you say about Iran and Syria now could be prescient and essential. We no longer have a clue, sir. We have heard too many stories. Many of us are as inclined to believe you just shuffled the director of national intelligence over to the State Department because he thought you were wrong about Iran. Many of us are as inclined to believe you just put a pilot in charge of the ground wars in Iraq and Afghanistan because he would be truly useful in an air war next door in Iran. Your assurances, sir, and your demands that we trust you have lost all shape and texture. They are now merely fertilizer for conspiracy theories. They are now fertilizer indeed. The pile has been built slowly and with seeming care. I read this list last night before the president's speech, and it bears repetition because its shape and texture are perceptible 
only in such a context. Before Mr. Bush was elected, he said nation building was wrong for America. Now he says it is vital. He said he would never put U.S. troops under foreign control. Last night he promised to embed them in Iraqi units. He told us about WMD, mobile labs, secret sources, aluminum tubes, yellow cake. He has told us the war is necessary because Saddam was a material threat, because of 9-11, because of Osama bin Laden, al-Qaeda, terrorism in general, to liberate Iraq, to spread freedom, to spread democracy, to prevent terrorism by gas price increases, because this was a guy who tried to kill his dad, because 439 words into that speech last night, he trotted out 9-11 again. In advocating and prosecuting this war, he passed on a chance to get Abu Musab al-Zarqawi, to get Muqtada al-Sadr, to get bin Laden. He sent in fewer troops than the generals told him to. He ordered the Iraqi army disbanded and the Iraqi government debathified. He shortchanged Iraqi training. He neglected to plan for widespread looting. He did not anticipate sectarian violence. He sent in troops without life-saving equipment. He gave jobs to foreign contractors and not to Iraqis. He staffed U.S. positions there based on partisanship, not professionalism. He and his government told us America had prevailed, mission accomplished, the resistance was in its last throes. He has insisted more troops were not necessary. He has now insisted more troops are necessary. He has insisted it's up to the generals and then removed some of the generals who said more troops would not be necessary. He has trumpeted the turning points, the fall of Baghdad, the death of Uday and Kusay, the capture of Saddam, a provisional government, a charter, a constitution, the trial of Saddam, elections, purple fingers, another government, the death of Saddam. He has assured us we would be greeted as liberators with flowers. As they stood up, we would stand down. We would stay the course. We were never about stay the course. We would never have to go door to door in Baghdad and last night that to gain Iraqis trust, we would go door to door in Baghdad. He told us the enemy was Al Qaeda, foreign fighters, terrorists, Baathists, and now Iran and Syria. The war would pay for itself. It would cost $1.7 billion, $100 billion, $400 billion, half a trillion. Last night's speech alone cost us another $6 billion. And after all of that, now it is his credibility versus that of generals, diplomats, allies, Democrats, Republicans, the Iraq study group, past presidents, voters last November, and the majority of the American people. Oh, and there's one more to add to the list tonight. Oceania has always been at war with East Asia. Mr. Bush, this is madness. You have lost the military. You have lost the Congress to the Democrats. You have lost most of the Iraqis. You have lost many of the Republicans. You have lost our allies in this. You are losing the credibility not just of your presidency, sir, but more importantly, of your office itself. And most imperatively, you are guaranteeing that more American troops will be losing their lives and more families their loved ones. You are guaranteeing that. This becomes your legacy, sir, how many of those you addressed last night as your fellow citizens you just sent to their deaths. And for what, Mr. Bush? So that the next president has to pull the survivors out of Iraq instead of you? Good night and good luck. So I have really messed up this time. Just take this as more evidence of my astonishingly poor foresight. I should have told you about it two months ago when I heard about it. But uh, better late than never, I have to tell you, 
this coming Saturday, January 27th, 2007, uh, there is a major anti-war rally going on in Washington, D.C. So I know it's short notice if you didn't know about it already, but if you have any interest and are capable, head down there and, and be a part of it. Um, as it stands, I'm still in Nashville, but thanks to a listener, I think I will actually be in in the D.C. area by next weekend, so I have every intention of going to the rally, although, of course, I don't know anyone else who's going, but the, the, the main point is for as many people to be there as possible, so um, whether you're on your own or, or with a group or however however you can pull it off, um, I think it would be a, a, an amazing experience. I'm really excited that uh, one of my first experiences in Washington will actually be a major rally because that's that's half the reason of, of trying to move there in the first place is, is to kind of be at the, at the heartbeat of the country where where the action is. So um, that's all I have to say. I apologize for for the announcement being so late, so so close to the actual date. But uh, you know, if it brings one more person there, then. I failed less in my job to bring you guys information. Have a good one, everybody.